Um, morning, everyone. Um, very excited. What a golden passage. This passage is like a treasure chest, and we're just going to pick up a few jewels and try and shine our light onto them today. Um, I'm going to start off, though, by thinking about um, one of the most painful things I'm told that anyone can experience, and I'm aware that I'm speaking from ignorance here, but I'm talking about childbirth. Um, our three boys are nearly all taller than me now, but I can still remember their, their births very vividly. Uh, looking back at a spectator, and I'll spare you the details, um, I, I can still remember the, the anguish, uh, the concern that I had as a husband looking at Katie, my wife, and seeing the agony and pain that she was going through. It was, you know, brought, you know, bring tears to my eyes thinking about it now, but, but we chose that to happen, not once, not twice, but three times. Uh, for Katie to go through that. Now, why go through that pain? Why go through it all? Is it worth it? And of course, Katie would be the first to say, of course it was worth it, for three reasons. Tommy, Eddie, and Ben, our three boys. But what was it that got her through? What kept her going through the pain of labor? Two words. Future hope. Future hope. Each time Katie went through childbirth, it was the, the future hope of holding the boys in her arms that kept her going uh, through the pain. If she didn't have that hope, that pain would have been miserable and meaningless. And going through difficulty with any, without any hope is soul-destroying, is it not? Going through difficulty without any hope is soul-destroying. And one of the realities that we have as living as Christians in a, a fallen and broken world is that we live experiencing trials and tribulations. We find it hard to keep going. The, the, the events of this week bring that very home to us very in a very real world, doesn't it? But as Christians, we have a wonderful future hope, a hope that can carry us through even the most difficult of circumstances, a hope that can carry us through even the most uncertain of times. And our reading from Revelation gives us a breathtaking picture of that hope. Uh, every time, um, not every time, that, that when Katie was in, in pregnancy, uh, sorry, in labor with the second, our second son, Eddie, um, as she was going through labor, I was trying to help her with this future hope kind of thing. And so I visualized and talked her through our photo album. And so I sort of said, do you remember that photo of um, you know, Tommy by the sea, dipping his feet in the water? Or do you remember that one of him standing, sitting, standing in front of the, um, the traction engine and the big smile on his face? So try and picture, get to picture those things. With, with Ben, our third child, I went one step further and actually made a, a kind of a video to music of um, you know, a slideshow of pictures and videos of, of the two boys. Uh, and we took it into the hospital with us. Uh, and had the laptop open and in between contractions would watch, would watch uh, the video um, just to give her that future hope, to, to say that it's going to be worth it. You know, remember where we're going with, with this. Remember where you're going with this. And it's those images that helped keep going. Now, I, I, could, I could have shown her one of those. I couldn't have. I wish I could have, though. Shown her one of these, maybe. You know, the latest uh, family photo of the boys on Christmas Day. Just see how, how big they've become. What a joy it is to have, you know, these three big strapping young men and that's not even the end of the story. Imagine if I could tell the end of the story. Now, Revelation 21 and 22 is a little bit like a sneak preview of a photo album or a, a, a video montage of the end of the story of the whole Bible, the end of the story of our Bible course, the end of the story of the world, in fact. Our future hope, 
And we can know the end of the story. We can know how things end up. And the end is glorious. And that glorious hope we have will keep us going as in our faith, even in difficult times. It's actually a vision of the future, not a video or a photo. And so remember that it's a vision, not a video, because we get lots of picture language, lots of symbolic language as you read Revelation. Revelation goes really wrong if you try and read it literally. It goes really wrong. And so don't forget, as we dive into it all this morning, we're thinking about big symbolic metaphors. I'm going to pick three out for us, hopefully that will help us remember uh, what we're thinking about this morning. We're going to think about one wedding, two cities, and three trees. Okay, one wedding, two cities, three trees. Before that, I want us to consider this verse on the screen there, the very first verse of the chapter, Revelation 21.1. And John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Echoes the very beginning of the Bible, doesn't it? The very first verse of the Bible. The very first verse, in, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. And so what we're seeing is God describe, John describing a new creation. Now this verse smashes out the park the idea that we might have of our future hope of heaven. Sometimes we think of heaven maybe looking a bit like this. People imagine heaven as some sort of airy-fairy, namby-pamby, clouds in the sky, people wearing togas, playing harps, floating around, nonsense. Okay, that is not what our hope is. In fact, in the Bible, heaven actually means that spiritual unseen place where Christ is now and where we go when we die. But the place that we have for our future hope is a new creation, heaven on earth, a new creation. Christ's resurrection body is a physical body, and so is our future hope. It'll be off the scale in terms of what we can imagine or picture. And so actually, as we read Revelation, we realize it's completely off the scale and off the charts because we, we don't actually get a, a physical description of the new creation at all. We should be very glad to know, actually, go back to that verse, very glad to know if you are a big fan of the sea. I once um, asked a member of staff at school to read this reading as part of a Remembrance Day service at school, and um, I gave him the reading in advance, and he, he came back to me very perturbed and says, I don't like this at all. You see, he's a massive kite surfing fan. There will no longer be any sea. I can't read this. And so I had to assure him, this is a vision, not a video. This is, this is a, a symbolic in Hebrew poetry, in Hebrew thought, the sea is a place of chaos and of disorder, of, of disconnection and of evil. And so when it says there'll be no longer any sea, this is good news. There'll be none of the things that make this physical world so painful and chaotic. It'll be a perfect new creation. And so we need to keep remembering that all the way through this vision as we unpack it, we're seeing symbolic language being used, not a physical description. We don't know whether there'll be golf or cricket or your favorite hobby in heaven. Who knows? Uh, what we get is a detailed, symbolic description of the relationships that we'll enjoy in heaven, ultimately with God himself, but also with each other as his family. So let's dive into those um, three big pictures we're going to think about this morning. First of all, number one, the one wedding, perfect intimacy in God's presence. The Bible begins and ends with a wedding. So right at the beginning, you have Adam and Eve in the garden paradise, united together as one flesh, as husband and wife to look after the creation, to walk in the garden in God's presence and in flourish. But that first wedding day was only ever meant to be a pointing forward to this ultimate 
final wedding day. The whole Bible could be described as a, a story of God trying to woo his people to himself as the perfect husband and us as his bride. And here we see at the end God's people described as uh, the bride of Christ, the bride of the Lamb, the husband, uh, beautifully dressed for him. So we see then the new city, the city which we'll come on to, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And so the new creation is described as a, as a marriage between us and Christ. And in terms of our understanding of human relationships, uh, marriage is possibly the most intimate one we can think of, up there with the most intimate ones we can think of. In a marriage, as you join one flesh with your, as a husband and wife, you feel like you know that person uh, inside out. There's a closeness, a bond, an intimacy, a joy, a harmony. You have everything in common together. So can you imagine then how much more incredible it will be on a kind of eternal, infinite scale to know that kind of relationship with God himself, to know that kind of intimacy and connection with God in the person of Christ filled with the Holy Spirit is something that we'll all experience, whether we're happily married, unhappily married, never married, single, whatever, wherever we are, this is our future as Christians. And it's described further in verse 3 as uh, the, the kind of culmination of the whole of the Bible story comes together in this verse in verse 3. God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. This has been the plan from the word go from, from Genesis onward that God will be dwelling intimately with us as his people. And this new creation of the moment where that plan comes to fulfillment. And as we think about it, as, as we try and look into Revelation, as we try and describe it, we can't do it justice. But the one thing that's going to make that future hope so good is this intimacy with God. Seeing him face to face. Being close with him in this way. Now, how excited that makes us feel. I don't know how, as you think about the idea of being with God, seeing him face to face uh, in intimate relationship. I guess... How excited we feel will depend on how we feel about God and how, how we see him. I guess the greater, the more lovely, the more magnificent, the more beautiful he is to us, the more excited we'll be. So let's try and think about that and whet our appetites for a moment. Being with him. We'll live with our creator. The God who planned the stars, the planets, and the galaxies. The one who came up with the idea of waterfalls or flowers, trees. The one who invented colors and smells and textures. The one who thought up the idea of laughter and of love and of friendship. The originator of kindness, of joy, of goodness. Think about all those gifts of creation that we enjoy and then imagine how much greater the giver of those gifts must be. To be with him intimately. We'll live with our creator. We'll live, though, also with our redeemer. The God himself who came up with the idea of rescuing a people for himself, who planned to come into the world in the person of Christ to carry out that rescue, who invented the concept of grace and mercy to people like me and you who just walk away from him and throw it in his face the whole time. 
The one who thought of the idea of self-sacrifice and humility seen incredibly in Christ as he, the lamb goes to the cross for us. The originator of faithfulness and patience and giving us the gift of the Spirit to help us persevere and keep going in our faith, though weak it may be. We'll live with our Redeemer, the one who loved us that much. Now, there's so much more we could think of as we meditate, meditate on the character of God and consider our mind-blowing, breathtaking God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But however excited we are about him, we'll be that excited about our future hope. And verses 4 and 5 builds on, on why it will be so great. So we get verses 4 and 5. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Just look at that verse. Imagine a world with none of those things. I remember someone teaching this passage a long time ago, and it stuck with me ever since. He said there'll be three H's that won't be there in the new creation. Three H's. There'll be no hearses, no handkerchiefs and no hospitals. No more death, no more crying, no more pain. And you actually can do that with every letter of the alphabet. I started having a go at this. Um, it's quite cool. You can think about this maybe over lunch. Uh, no more addiction, no more arguments, no more anxiety. B, I've got the pictures of B, no more bullying, no more betrayal, no more boredom. C, no more cancer, no more crime, no more COVID-19, <laughs> praise the Lord. You could go on, couldn't you? Maybe do that over lunch. If we're Christians, this is our future hope. This kind of relationship where uh, we, we live with, without anything that makes this world so hard, where we don't have to deal with... A illness or bereavement or injury or theft or pain or sadness or brokenness or wear and tear or viruses. Any kind of suffering and sadness is gone as we're perfectly intimate with God. He'll make all things new. One wedding. Perfect intimacy with our God, in God's presence. Two cities. Next, two cities. Uh, this had that bizarre picture, didn't you, in um, verse 2 of a, of a bride and a city all in one. It's these images piled on top of each other. And I guess it's partly the idea of city to stop us thinking individually and get us thinking together and corporately. Not me, but we. This is picturing, so you get all the joy and intimacy of a, of a marriage, and you get all the, the buzz and community and bustle of a city in one. Our home with God will be bright and glorious, a community of believers worshipping him in all that we do in relationship together, completely united and harmonious. And that city is described in verse 10 as the holy city, as the new Jerusalem. Now, if we had read the whole of Revelation, throughout Revelation you get this um, tale of two cities going on. You get Babylon on one hand and you get Jerusalem on the other hand. And Babylon is a, a symbolic picture of people in conflict between 
themselves and God. It's, it summarizes the conflict that goes throughout the whole Bible and the story of the Bible. So it starts back in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel and they're kind of trying to take uh, God's place there and it goes all the way through. And Revelation incredibly describes the final defeat, the fall of Babylon and the final defeat of all that is evil. And instead you get the city of God triumphant, coming down out of heaven. And if you go down the literal route, you end up with something like this. You get this extraordinary image of a cuboid, a cube city, uh, bejeweled in, in dazzling array of, of, of precious stones. And in verses 15 and 16, you get this, this uh, city being measured, and it's 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. Uh, it's got 12 foundations and 12 gates. Its walls are 12 by 12, that's 144 cubits thick. And if you go down the literal route, it makes no sense. This kind of massive city, nearly 1,400 miles long, here to Greece and up, you know, it's just it's bonkers picture, isn't it? Um, but then you think about it more carefully and think, well, what's 12 all about? Well, 12 is, is the number of, of God's people, of the tribes and of the apostles. A thousand is the, is, is the number of massiveness, the massive people of God gathered together. But I want to think about this cube, this cube, because we went to think, well, a cube city, it makes no sense. Where have we seen cubes before, though, in the Bible? Where have you seen a cube before? And you think, okay, cubes. And you go back to the temple. And in the temple, you have the holy place. And in the center of the temple, you have the most holy place, the holy of holies. And what shape is it? It's a cube. It's a cube. So in the center of the temple, the place where God's glory comes, the place of sacrifice, you have a cube. And so what we're seeing here is a description of a perfect community of God's people enjoying the presence of God and all his glory. Reflecting it, living it, basking in it, in the Holy of Holies the whole time. I guess the problem is, is us, if we think about cities too, too closely though, often our association with cities goes beyond the kind of tourist stuff to the the reality that cities are places that are full of darkness and violence and theft and vandalism and terrorism and you know, all sorts of broken relationships and mess. And so we look at verse 8 and we realize it's not going to be like that. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderous, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, the liars, they'll be consigned to the lake of burning sulfur, the second death. And then later in verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Tough verses right in the middle of this kind of treasure trove of joy. Tough verses, but actually encouragement to us. I think they're meant to be an encouragement. Nothing impure will ever enter this city. Who wouldn't want to live in a community where everyone spoke kindly to each other and delighted in each other, where anyone or any time could walk anywhere without fear, where everything is wholesome and clean and pure and shining with goodness and love. Who wouldn't want to live in a place like that? It's great encouragement. I think it's meant to be, but it's also a deep challenge, isn't it? Because by nature, that is me in verse 8. That is each one of us by nature. We are impure. And I guess we experience that sometimes. Our, our, our community can feel more like Babylon than Jerusalem sometimes. And I guess the challenge is for us to live out what one day we will be. 
to not tolerate and play with sin and impurity in our lives and to, to be resolved to fight for holiness in all that we do. But also, I guess it's a great encouragement to, to, and a challenge to reach out to the lost, to live out our vision as a family of God, to reach out to the lost, because this future hope is not for everyone. And verse 8, though it is me, describes those who persist in sin and don't accept Christ as their Savior. Without him, there is no future hope. It is literally, ultimately hopeless. But wonderfully, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. So just before in verse 6, John writes, To the thirsty, God speaking, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Today is the day of salvation. So if you're here this morning and you wouldn't be sure whether you're in Christ, remember this verse. It's a free offer to take the water of life, to drink it freely, to come to Jesus, to receive his grace and his forgiveness, his mercy uh, without cost, freely. Don't delay. Don't delay. And for us who do know the Lord and have this hope, Let's not be selfish with it. Let's, let's be out there, reaching the lost, inviting them to this wonderful party, to this wonderful future hope that we have, sharing it with others. So one wedding, perfect intimacy in God's presence. Two cities, perfect community in God's glory. And finally, three trees, perfect peace in God's service. And we're going to fast forward to chapter 22 for our last little thought, this last little picture. And you see, did you notice in verse um, 2, the second half of verse 2, you get this description of uh, the river going through the city, and then on each side of the river you've got the tree of life. The tree of life that is bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Nothing uh, uh, cursed, no curse there. The lamb on his throne, his servant serving him. And so we get this picture of the tree of life at the end of Revelation for all the nations to come to. You get the, the, the whole world gathering uh, in here. A wonderful picture of diversity and unity. Uh, but it takes us back, doesn't it, to the beginning, how we have in the original creation the tree of life. Do you remember the tree of life was there right in the garden at the beginning? Um, but the problem was that when mankind fell, we were banished from the garden and didn't have access to the tree of life. Well, here we now have complete access for all people. Free access all the time. No curse. But how do you get from one to the other? How do we get from that creation to that new creation? That's the third tree. The third tree coming in is the cross. The tree upon which our Savior hung. The tree of salvation that Christ himself was nailed to for us and for our forgiveness. And it's this third tree that gives me confidence about my future hope. It's this third tree that can give us confidence about our future hope. Because as we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, we can see the lengths that he was willing to go to to secure our salvation, to make the, the tree of life available to us in the new creation. It shows how God is committed to reaching the nations. It shows me that I know even if I can't see right now this hope, even that hope feels like a long way away, even if I'm in the midst of the mess and brokenness and pain and confusion and anxiety of living in this world, I can look to the cross and see how God is committed to that future, that he willingly gave up his only son for us. 
So Paul writes in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? This future is certain because of what Christ has done in the past for us. And our challenge is to hold on to this hope as we look to Christ, the cross, the resurrection, in the midst of our suffering and sadness. And I want to finish with a story to encourage from this. This guy wasn't a random picture of someone with cancer I put up earlier. This guy's called Sam, and I want to encourage you with his story. He was diagnosed with leukemia at the age of 18. He was a big, strapping, sporty, outgoing, vivacious Australian guy. You know, head of school, captain of rugby, all that kind of stuff. But he was diagnosed with leukemia, and 12 years later, a few weeks ago, he died. And after a long fight with that disease. But throughout that fight, he clung on to the future hope that we've been thinking about this morning. And it was tough. There were highs and lows, there were doubts and despairs along the way, but this, he kept coming back to this hope. And he wrote in his, in his journal the words I want to read to you now that, that he had found helpful and that were read out at his Thanksgiving service in Sydney. And he pictures, he changes the metaphor, he pictures uh, his, his life as, as living in a house and his future hope as moving house. And let me close by reading his story that he wrote. The owner of the house I've lived in for many years has notified me that he will furnish but do little or nothing to keep it in repair. He has also advised me to be ready to move. At first, this was not very welcome news. In many respects, the surrounding area is quite pleasant. And if not for the evidence of a somewhat declining condition, the house seemed rather nice. Yet a closer look reveals that even a light wind would cause it to shake and sway, and its foundation is not sufficient to make it secure. Therefore, I'm getting ready to move. As I consider the move, it's strange how quickly my interest is transferred to my prospective new home in another country. I've been consulting maps and studying accounts of its inhabitants. And someone who's come from there to visit has told me it is beautiful beyond description, and that language is inadequate to fully describe what he heard while there. He said that in order to make an investment there, he has suffered the loss of everything he owns here, yet rejoices at what others would call a sacrifice. Another person whose love for me has been proved by the greatest possible test now lives there. He has sent me several clusters of the most beautiful grapes I've ever eaten, and having tasted them, everything here tastes very bland. Several times I've gone to the edge of the river that forms a boundary between here and there, and I've longed to be with those singing praises to the king on the other side. Many of my friends have moved across that river, and I've seen the smile on their faces as they pass from my sight. So each time I'm asked to make some investment here, I now respond, I'm getting ready to move. That future hope we have can transform our now. Even in the darkest times, even in the most uncertain times. And my prayer is that we'd hold on to that hope together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible vision. We know that we can't really get our heads around it, but we thank you for giving us these uh, this treasure to consider this morning and to, to marvel at what you have 
purposes for us in the future. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the extent of your love to us and the length that you went to to secure this future for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for filling us and giving us eyes to see by faith what is ours in Christ. And we pray that you'd strengthen and keep us going. Pray for brothers and sisters this morning who are struggling to keep going, who are weighed down by anxiety and trials and tribulations. I pray you'd help them to lift their eyes to see this hope and this future that is ours. And would that strengthen them to keep going? We pray in Christ's great name. Amen.